Isaiah 62 is theoretically where we are tonight. We may not get there for a while. If on your way to Isaiah you happen to trip over Hosea, sticking a bookmark there probably wouldn't be a waste of time. If you need a Bible to bookmark, see Pastor Dade. News that I don't think that I've shared. I was wrong. I know that that's shocking. It happened once before. It was horrible. So I, I, I said a few weeks ago that, uh, that I was praying about taking a break from the prophets and looking at Psalms this summer, which are many of them prophetic in their own right. Well, I hadn't prayed about it when I said that. I was just getting fixing to. I was fixing to pray about it. God said, no, keep going. So uh, in a few weeks, we'll be turning the page to Jeremiah. And I mentioned that just in case you want to read ahead. I mentioned that just in case you're planning plans that you haven't prayed about. Because I was pretty sure Psalms was right until I prayed. What Pastor Chuck say? You can do more than pray after you prayed, but you shouldn't do anything until you've prayed. <laughs> Jeremiah 52 and see, here's stuff I haven't prayed about. But 52 chapters. So if we take it at a couple chapter a week pace, which is, which is not a reach with Jeremiah, really. Some, sometimes we might slow down. There's stretches of Jeremiah. You can do three weeks in a night and, and, and not be breaking a sweat. Maybe we finish that up before the end of the year. But who knows? Haven't prayed about it yet. I know we're in Isaiah tonight. And Isaiah 61 Last week, we looked at the revived nation of Israel, pictured there at the end of Isaiah 61 as the wife of Yahweh, the remarried wife of Yahweh, on the other side of repentance, obviously. On the other side of repentance comes restoration, comes reconciliation. And it's not the only place we see that reference. It's not the only place that we see God and Israel remarried, that image, that idea. If Isaiah 61 were the only place that it popped up, those who point to it and say, no, you're confused, that's the church, that's the bride of Christ. If it was only that one place, you could maybe tilt your head and squint your eyes and, and see it that way. Except the Holy Spirit anticipates that error. It's, it's, it's wonderful. One of the amazing things about Scripture is how it in, anticipates every intentional and unintentional effort to distort or confuse it. Scripture anticipates every heretical interpretation. It anticipates every genuine misunderstanding, including this one. If we glance back to Isaiah 54... We were here just a few weeks ago, and when we were here, verse 8, we read God speaking, well, let's start in verse 5, we speak, see God speaking to Israel, your maker, Isaiah 54, 5, is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you, 
like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And we said at the time, and we'll say again tonight, that's clearly not the church. Yes, the church is the bride of Christ, but that's not what's in view here. How do we know? The church is never forsaken, are we? The church is never forsaken. Israel today is set aside by God for a season. Blinded, as it were. We read about that in Romans 9 through 11 just recently. But never the church. We belong to God forever. Even when we don't feel like it, we know by faith that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 54 testifies to it. When we get to Hosea, and go ahead and flip there. Not a lot of verses tonight, so we can take some time to pop, hop and pop around. The whole book of Hosea speaks of the relationship between God and Israel. Hosea, turn, turn right, go through the major prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there it is, first of the minor prophets. Not minor because they're less important, minor because they're shorter. There's some incredibly important things in the minor prophets. Chapter 2, we'll pick up the story in the middle after God tees it up by calling Hosea to live out the prophecy that he gives him, to live out the prophecy that God imparts to him. Marry an unfaithful woman, God says to Hosea. You're going to be a living, breathing object lesson for me. Well, with that out of the way, chapter 2, well, for the moment, chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter, God's clearly talking about Israel. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown at the end of, uh, at, at the beginning of chapter two. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Okay, this sounds familiar, right? And God goes on to detail the time of his separation from Israel, the time of Israel's chastisement, and and we've been here before in our study through. Isaiah, let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries, and so forth. But in verse 14, go ahead and scroll down a little bit, starting in verse 14. God also, God the Holy Spirit through Hosea also, describes the reconciliation that will follow. Verse 14, therefore behold I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I'll give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Acre as a door of hope. She shall sing there as the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Wilderness, we've noticed before, often points to the land of Edom. Why is that significant? When we get to Isaiah 63, and we've, we've previewed this a couple times, but Isaiah 63, the Holy Spirit's really going to land it Edom, I believe, is where God pours out the spirit of grace and supplication we read about in Zechariah 12. Edom is where the remnant of Israel, having fled from the persecution of Antichrist, 
calls upon the name of the Lord. There in Edom, there in the wilderness. Back to Hosea 2.14, I will allure her. I will woo her. I'll pour out upon her the spirit of grace and supplication. As a result, verse 16, it shall be in that day, there's that phrase that, that signals to us that we're talking about the end times. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Husband and master, the, the King, New King James doesn't, doesn't bring over the Hebrew, but what it says is you'll no longer be Bali, but rather you'll be Ishi. Both of those are perfectly good words for husband, but Bali, B-A-L-I, sounds like Baal. So God is saying, hey, you're no longer going to speak anything, do anything, in any way resemble the person you were before you were carried off, the person you were when you worshipped the idols of Babylon. Now, obviously, return from the Babylonian exile is the short-term fulfillment of that. At the end of the tribulation, Israel will be done with every idolatry, every false worship, every self-exaltation forever. Verse 18, in that day, again signaling us to the end times, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. And this is clearly a promise of the millennial kingdom, right? Peace with Israel, between Israel and God, peace with Israel, Israel and her neighbors, peace of Israel, the animal kingdom, will be peaceable. All people will enjoy peace with, their with, with the surroundings that are nature, the surroundings that are people. The, the defining quality, the most prominent characteristic of the millennial kingdom will be peace. Verse 19, I'll betroth you to me forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Three times in two verses we read about betrothal because God is saying three distinct things about it. It's going to be eternal. It'll be forever. It's going to be bountiful. Every aspect of the character of God will characterize it, loving kindness and righteousness and mercy and so forth. And it will be unbreakable, God says, because in that betrothal I will manifest my faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Know in the, in the sense of marriage. Verse 21, it shall come, come to pass in that day. Again, pointing at the end times. That will answer, says the Lord. I'll answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, new wine, oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow, for, sow her for myself in the earth, and I will obtain, I'll have mercy on her who have not obtained mercy. Then I'll say, to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Hosea, if, if you've been in Hosea lately or at all, you remember <clears throat> the book of Hosea is noted for wordplay. God likes puns. 
and, and we're only scratching the surface here, but here's one of them, just real, can mean either God scatters or God sows. For centuries, centuries and still going, Israel has experienced the first definition. Israel has experienced scattering, right? In the millennium, God just promised Israel will experience the second sowing. Israel will be sown and reap. And, and we saw last week and the week before the fruitfulness, both of the land and the people of Israel. Why, why did we go here again? Why are we in Hosea? What day is it? To remind ourselves, to let the Holy Spirit remind us, Isaiah is not unique, far from unique, in picturing, in teaching, in revealing Israel's journey as the wife of Yahweh, the journey from marriage to adultery, to separation, to divorce, at least in the case of the southern kingdom, to repentance, to reconciliation and reunion, and finally to remarriage. Interesting connection to Sunday, right? When we looked at the relationship between forgiveness and reconciliation. Israel, like you and I, forgiven at the cross, but true reconciliation is always a product of what? Repentance. And we see that even in our relationship today. Unconfessed sin between, gets between our, uh, in our relationship with God. It hinders, it quenches. Are we forgiven that sin? Of course, that was settled at the cross 2,000 years ago. Does it hinder the relationship? Of course it does until we repent, until we pursue reconciliation. But back to Isaiah 62, we thought we'd never get there. We might ask ourselves, what does any of this have to do with us? I've had people ask me, as recently as a couple weeks ago, why do we spend so much time studying Israel? Romans 9, 10, and 11, we could have done that in a week. Why did we take several weeks? Isaiah, why are we taking one chapter at a time? Because if we study Israel, by definition, we're studying something past, and we're studying something future. Today, in the church age, Israel is set aside. So it has nothing to do with our present. And when God turns his attention back to Israel, by definition, we'll be raptured out of here. We'll be watching from the mezzanine. So Israel's future has nothing to do with us was the conversation I had with someone just a couple weeks ago. I'm confident those of you who have been with us can, can list 11 different reasons why that's wrong. But Isaiah 62 gives us a reason that you might not have thought of. Extra points if you have. Isaiah 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, Isaiah speaking, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Isaiah understood, certainly by, by, the point, by this point in his ministry, he understood what God intended to do. God wasn't obscuring it. We sometimes have to scratch a little bit at the poetical language to understand it. But, but God is not hiding his will in the clouds. He's revealing it through his servant, the prophet Isaiah. In detail, he's revealing his plans for Israel. Now, you and I can say, well, we understand better. 
Oh, good. I didn't know it was a competition, but I guess we won. <laughs> I mean, we probably do. Because unlike Isaiah, we have the benefit of all of the prophets. We have the teaching of Jesus, which interprets much of what the prophets spoke. Peter tells us the prophets didn't fully understand what they were saying. Jesus certainly did. And he impacts a, a lot of it for us. We got the book of Revelation that adds a little bit of insight. So, so yeah, taken all together, we have a fuller picture of how Israel's future plays out. We certainly understand the part about Jesus' rejection, and we can parse the prophecies of the first and second coming in a way that I'm sure Isaiah couldn't. We understand the purpose and the plan of Jesus' return, but, but all of that being said, Isaiah still understood an awful lot. Isaiah understood enough to know that Israel would be brought low. God would allow Israel to bring herself low and would affirm it, would ratify it. Isaiah understood that Israel would be brought low and then restored. God had told him that. Spoken to him personally, distinctly, clearly, in detail about Israel's restoration. The restoration of relationship, the restoration of, to the land, the restoration of, of the people to the Lord. He understood that Israel would see the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And what did he do, Isaiah? What did he do in response? He just told us in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to pray, and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm going to pray and pray and pray that everything that God has spoken will come to pass. Now, people will sometimes ask, well, what's the point of that? If God has already ordained future history, if he's already determined it and declared how things are going to play out, what's the point? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? We know how the story ends. Isaiah's been telling us there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace returns. When the Prince of Peace returns, there'll be peace. It's already determined. It's already written. So why pray? Answer. Because God is inviting us to play a role. He's inviting us into the process. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's, who's writing, whose commentary on Isaiah I'm indebted to, points out God not only ordains the end, he also ordains the means. God in his sovereignty decides what's going to happen, but God in that same sovereignty decides how it's going to happen, how it's going to unfold, how Israel's going to get there. And part of how it comes to pass, part of what brings it to pass, God has ordained, will be prayer. Prayer of the prophets like Isaiah, prayer of the Old Testament saints, prayer of the church, prayer of the tribulation saints. Verse 2, 
The Gentiles shall see your righteousness. See, Isaiah is not confused about how the story plays out. And all kings, your glory, you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. We don't learn that name until 200 years after Isaiah. Isaiah didn't know the name. We learn in Ezekiel 48, 35, Ezekiel 48, 35, the name that Isaiah is referring to is Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. That's going to be God's new name for Jerusalem. Isaiah didn't have that detail. 200 years after Isaiah died, God didn't provide that detail. But it didn't stop Isaiah from praying on the basis of the details he had, on the basis of the information God had given. Maybe Isaiah's prayer is part of what brought forth that detail in Ezekiel's day. Verse 3, You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. What's a diadem? We, we, there, are, there are hymns that have it. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. It's a turban. Diadem is the, the headdress, the headpiece of the high priest. How does that fit in? Israel was originally called to be a nation of priests. Exodus 19. Today, while Israel is set aside for a season, that honor falls to us. You and I are called in Scripture kings of, and priests. Better translation, probably kingdom of priests. But in the millennium, that honor will once again fall to Israel. It will finally fall to Israel. Israel will finally fulfill that call on them. They will be a nation of priests. Jerusalem will be the capital. Jerusalem will be the head of the nation, will bear the crown, the diadem, the headdress. Verse 4, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed, uh, termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you. Delight is, is Hephzibah, and, uh, and your land shall be married. That's Beulah, that's what Beulah means. Verse 5. <clears throat> For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. There's your memory verse for tonight. If you do memory verses. It's one of my favorite verses in Isaiah. I think it's one of the most important verses in the Bible. And I know it doesn't make most people's top 10 list or top 20 list. Because the, the significance, I admit, doesn't jump off the page. But read it again. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When, end of verse 4, your land shall be married. What's going on here? Israel was a harlot an adulterer, a prostitute. Israel turned tricks, we learn in many of the prophet, prophetic books, Israel turned tricks when she didn't have to. God was providing for her. She went out of her own accord because she thought it would be fun. She disgraced her husband. And what did God do? What did God just say, verse 5, about how he forgives? He looks at Israel 
on the other side of her spiritual adultery, on the other side of rejecting her Savior, her, savior, her Redeemer, the Messiah, and he sees her as a virgin bride. God looks at Israel at the end of the tribulation and sees white. You and I sing, white as snow, white as snow, though my skin, uh, sin be as scarlet. God looks at Israel the exact same way. Guilt removed, shame erased, wearing white. We'll come back to that before we're done, but we should keep going or we won't get done. Verse six, I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night, so they're praying too. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. You can find rabbis reading and interpreting these verses who will argue that what's in view here are angels. And, and, and I'm not prepared to say I'm absolutely positively sure they're wrong. You can go from there and you can rabbit trail about, and do a study about guardian angels and, and explore that whole idea. Don't dismiss that out of hand. Israel had a guardian angel. We read about him in Daniel 10, 21, Daniel 12, verse 1. And there's a conversation to be had about whether we have guardian angels. If, if you want to tug at that thread, if you want to go down that rabbit trail, start in Matthew 18, verse 10. But, but I'm not sure that that's the right interpretation. I'm not sure that it's not. But is there an alternative? I think that there is. You... <clears throat> who are in the wrong chapter. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. You who make mention of the Lord, you can also translate that, you who remind the Lord. The root is from the same Hebrew as the word to remember. 2 Kings 18.18, 18, it, 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 that same root uh, gives us the, the office of a record keeper, a secretary, an appointment secretary, someone who reminds the king of, of important things to do. Could be angels, who else could it be? Who else comes before the Lord with pleas and supplications, asking and asking and asking again because we've been given permission to, because we've been invited to, because we've been instructed to? People like you and me. I wonder, and I'm not pounding and declaring and thus say a thing, I'm just, I'm wondering. Are the watchmen on the wall here the church? Are the watchmen on the wall here perhaps the church and the Old Testament saints, maybe even the tribulation saints, praying, interceding, asking, God, will you rescue Israel? God, will you restore Israel? Day and night? Well, if you take all of the saints who are alive at any given time, surely at any given time someone is praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Scripture instructs us to several different places. I've shared before things that I believe and can't prove. I believe that no one comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus apart from intercessory prayer. This is one of the reasons I think that. It's not the only reason. And again, I can't, I can't prove it. But I have a strong suspicion that what's in view here is intercessory prayer, obedience to God's instruction in the Psalms and elsewhere. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Reminding God, God, you've promised 
asking God, God, will you deliver on your promise? Bearing witness to God, we believe your promise. Verse 8, whoever it is, the Lord answers. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. He's sworn by himself because there's no higher authority. Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. God says, yeah, there'll be a day when Israel's no longer a, a slave nation, no longer working for others, no longer living in fear. There'll be a day when Israel prospers in the land. There'll be a day when Israel prospers in the Lord's presence. And we're going to pause here because the rest of this, I think, serves as a really great introduction to chapter 63. So instead of taking the last few verses, flip over to Psalm 122 as we wrap up. And we'll just take it beginning at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I'll now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? The instruction is repeated a bunch of other places. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I... I I'm not going to say we know fully. I think that there's layers upon layers to that. Wheels within wheels. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? Some will say, oh, because God says bless those who bless Jerusalem. God says I'll bless those who bless Jerusalem, curse those who curse Jerusalem. Genesis 12, 3. Okay, but that's not a reason. That's an observation. That's a promise on behalf of the Lord that will be rewarded for obedience and punished for disobedience, but it's not an explanation for why it's important to God in the first place. Neither is the fact that Jerusalem, the name itself, means peaceful. That's interesting. That underlines the importance, but it still doesn't tell us why. Like I said, there's probably not a reason, but the thing I find myself meditating on lately, what we think about Jerusalem has everything to do with what we think about the cross. What we think about Jerusalem, and especially the future of Jerusalem, has everything to do with what we think about the cross, doesn't it? Last week, I, and I can't remember if it was Wednesday or Sunday, last week I, I threw out the idea that what we think about the end times affects how we think about everything. And I still think that that's true. Subset of that if how we think about the end times affects how we think about everything, how we think about Jerusalem in the end times has everything to do with what we think about Jesus. The Bible says that Israel is going to be surrounded and decimated. Armies are going to lay waste to it. And let's be honest, our pride... Our sinful, selfish, self-exalting selves want to say, okay, you deserve it. 
You rejected Jesus. But if we heed what Paul says, what he's been saying the last several weeks, and not be conformed to the world, and rather be transformed, if we think like God, what, is, what are God's thoughts toward Jerusalem? Die, burn, burn, scatter the ashes. If we think like Jesus, how do we think? Justice, vengeance? Or do we think, God, have mercy? When we think of Jerusalem, do we think, God, you did have mercy? When we think of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, do we think, God, you had mercy on us, have mercy on them? When we think about Israel, do we think, God, you are mercy, you do mercy, you've promised mercy. God, will you keep your promise? God, have mercy on your people, Israel. Because what we think about Jerusalem has everything to do with what we think about Jesus. Is there anything God can't forgive? Is there anything he will not forgive? If we're hard-hearted toward Jerusalem, if we think that God can't or won't forgive Jerusalem, if we resent God for forgiving Jerusalem, then we open the door to the possibility that there might be something that God won't forgive us for. And oh boy, are we off to the races then, aren't we? Oh, praise Jesus that that we have the answer in verse 5. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to ponder. We we do have to ponder because it's so deep. But but we don't have to guess what the answer is. Verse 5 gives it to us. God looks at Jerusalem after he pours out the spirit of grace and supplication, after Jerusalem repents, after Jerusalem mourns, Zechariah 12, God sees his bride wearing white, a virgin, unsullied and unstained by sin, her adultery forgotten, her harlotry remembered no more. Are we ready to embrace that answer? Are we excited about that answer? Do we agree with God and pray, yes, Lord, that's how great you are. That's how gracious you are. That's how tremendous your mercy is. We give you highest praise, Lord, for your mercy, the mercy that you've shown us, the same mercy you will one day show Jerusalem. God, you've promised God, keep your promise. God, bring peace to Jerusalem. God, bring the peace of the Prince of Peace to Jerusalem. Do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because when we do, we're agreeing with Jesus. When we do, we're becoming more like Jesus. When we do, we're getting a little bit closer to understanding the grace that God has for us. Lord, we ask
Would you bring peace to Jerusalem? A peace that that city has never known in the church age, has rarely known in all of the ages. Lord, we see, more clearly than Isaiah saw, we see your promises, your character, your love, your faithfulness, your justice, yes, your mercy, and even greater, yes, Oh, your grace, Lord. It always comes back to your grace. It comes back to your grace for us. It comes back to your grace for them. Father, would you pour out your peace? Would you hear the cries of repentance? Would you bring about the situation and circumstances? And, and we know that it includes the chastening, the tribulation, the shaking, but on the other side of that comes fulfillment, comes kingdom, comes glory. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to bring our peace, to be our peace. We pray for Israel, Lord, that they might know that peace. Come quickly, Jesus. Jesus.